This has been so fun. Have you enjoyed, Daniel? Yeah, today we really get to go into some really cool stuff. You know it's not expected? Precisely. But Daniel does. And that's what we're going to talk about today. Daniel has this prophecy today that will just knock your socks off. When I read it, when I was coming to faith, and I was investigating, is the Bible true and all this? This is one of those passages that, for me, was one that I could not get around, right? This is one of those where, where God basically shows off. And he says, yep, I'm real, and I'm in control, and, I'm, uh, and the Bible is not just uh, a storybook made up uh, to, you know, this is the real deal stuff. It's pretty crazy. And so uh, when we get into today's passage, um, let's, let's start with the context of it. This is the fourth of Daniel's four prophecies, right? We've had the three others that we've already discovered, and you can listen to those um, sermons online at funchurch.com if you miss them. And you can also read about them here in the Bible. So if you start in chapter 7, you can read them. They're pretty amazing things. Now we are at the last one. Uh, last week, we had this great thing where we talked about the... Uh, that the battle is bigger than you think. We talked about spiritual warfare and about the God is actually working even behind the scenes and he's sovereign even there. But this today we talk about, we, we see this, you just can't make this up. It's amazing stuff. And so our memory verse today comes to us from 2 Peter and, and uh, it's one of those passages that I think is good for us to remember because in our world, our day and age, I read an article that uh, we are having the first post-Christian generation being raised, where the majority of the kids that are under 16 now have no faith whatsoever or are not Christian, right? Post-Christian. And most of them say things like, I don't believe in fairy tales or made-up stuff. They should read the Bible because this is amazing. And it is not just a book that was written by old guys a long time ago. In fact, Second Peter reminds us in the script that prophecy never had its origin in the human will. That means that people didn't make it up. But the prophets, though humans, spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. Isn't that awesome? Now, you want to memorize that because I think we live in a time that discounts Scripture. We live in a time that people have no idea what the Bible is. But we do. And it's important for us to hold to this and recognize that this is not just some old wisdom literature. These are the Word of God, and it's powerful, and it's effective for today. So if you want to memorize that in your, in your memory or your, your bulletins, there's a Bible memory verse and you could take that. It is, it's powerful. It's a shield to help us, as we talked about, putting on the armor of God, uh, to have that faith, to remember that in this world, there are going to be a lot of things that try to challenge God's word, but in the end, it will always prevail because it's based on truth. Now, if you have your Bibles, I'm going to turn to Daniel chapter 11. That's going to be on page 622 if you have one of our Bibles. If you need a Bible, of course, we've got a bunch of them in the back. Um, and if you don't have a Bible, keep it. Our gift to you. All right, so as you turn there, um, we're going to begin today with actually verse 2, because last week we went through chapter 11, verse 1, and that's really where this passage or this uh, prophecy begins in harness is, is chapter 2. Now, this is a vision of the time of the end. Daniel was told to kind of seal these things up because they were for times before. So when Daniel got this prophecy, if he showed everybody, they would say, this is crazy. We have no idea. This is because it talked about future things. Daniel was told to take these things and seal them up for the times of the end. And, uh, and so he shows us what's going to happen in these later days and begins with a Persian-Greek conflict that happens. Okay, So the first thing we read in chapter two, verse 2, it says, Now I'll tell you the truth. This is the glorious man, that shiny guy who shows up and talks to Daniel. And he says here that, uh, I'll tell you the truth. Three more kings will arise in Persia. Then a fourth will be far richer than all the others. Uh, when he has gained power by his wealth, he will stir up 
everyone against the kingdom of Greece, which was really unique because back then when Daniel lived, Greece was not like a big thing, right? They were just a bunch of uh, little towns, right? This mighty king will arise and will rule over uh, a great power and do as he pleases. Now, turns out this actually happened. Daniel, when he was alive, they had three more major kings. There was Cyrus the Great, which is when Daniel wrote this, right? But then after Cyrus, we have Cambius II, and then after him, he, had, he was followed up by uh, Smyrtus, right? And now he had a funny leather name that I can't uh, pronounce, but if you could see him and look it up, it's Beridia. And then there was Darius the Great, who came into power, right? And then there was Xerxes I. Now, you'll know Xerxes was also the same guy who was uh, married to Esther in the book of Esther, right? And, you know, some interesting happened is that the fourth one, Xerxes, was far richer than all the other ones. Who knew? And you know what Xerxes decided to do? He decided to go out and, and uh, he was like, I'm going to go get those Greeks, <laughs> right? Now, before, Darius the Great had a couple skirmishes in there and all that kind of stuff, and he lost, and then Darius, or Xerxes was like, oh, I'm going to get those Greeks. And he gets his massive army, and they go out, and they try to fight the, 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 uh, the Greeks, and they lose uh, several different major battles. And that becomes the, the, the demarcation point at which the Persian Empire starts its decline. How amazing. Well, then it says, after all these guys, that uh, there is going to be a, a, uh, a mighty king shall arise, and that's Alexander the Great, and will do as he pleases. And we saw that in earlier chapters where we talking, remember the, the, the unicorn, the goat, right, and the rams, and the ram was, the, was, of course, the Persian Empire, and then we had the goat, right, the unicorn that had the, uh, the one horn, Alexander the Great, and he's going to do as he wishes, right? And he did. And you saw how he invaded the, the land, and it was just like he was hardly even touching the ground. He was just flying so fast, just, just destroying Persia, which was amazing because Persia was not weak. They were incredibly, incredibly powerful, right? And he will do as he pleases, and after he's arisen, his empire will be broken and parceled into the four winds of heaven, right? So he's going to die, and then his empire is going to be broken up into four parts, the kingdom of Greece. It, you saw it here first, ladies and gentlemen. And what happened? The Grecian Empire, after Alexander the Great dies, it gets divided up into four major portions, right? And how were they divided up? Well, you have the four generals of Alexander. It wasn't even his own descendants, as it says here. It was just divided up once four generals. So Cassander, he gets that first part up in the, in the top area, um, in which we would think of as like Macedonia, kind of traditional Greece. Lysimachus, he gets that kind of that middle area there, uh, and so uh, we see that it's kind of like between um, Greece and Turkey, modern day, is up into there. And then you have the, the big ones. You have the Seleucid Empire, Seleucus. He kind of gets that, that huge area, uh, which is really where Iran and all that kind of stuff is, and then in Turkey, and then you have Ptolemy, who gets really where Egypt is. Gets broken up into four parts, just as it was written. Now, uh, there's going to be an extended uh, conflict then that we begin to see between the king of the north and the king of the south is what is written about here. It says, A mighty king will rise, he's going to do what he wants, and after he's risen, his kingdom is, is divided up, um, and it will not be given to his descendants, which we saw right there in verse 4, um, which I think is a pretty awesome uh, prophecy that uh, this powerful king, this, this ruler is going to come in, and then his kids don't even get to take power, and it's exactly what we see. So it's broken up amongst the four uh, things. And then... Uh, his empire will be uprooted and given to others. And verse 5, then, the king of the south will become strong, but one, uh, one of his uh, commanders will become even stronger than he and rule over his kingdom with great power. And we begin, the, we see this, they're going to have this kingdoms of the north versus the kingdom of the south, and we're going to spend quite a bit of time 
uh, in these battles between the king of the north and the south. Now, who is the king of the north and who's the king of the south? Well, you'll see that the king of the north is going to be Seleucus. And why? Because Ptolemy is south of, of Seleucus, right? <laughs> and the king of the south then, of course, is Ptolemy in, in, in that area. So you have these two, uh, basically they're going to have this, this strife inside of Greece between these two kings from the, the four that take over all of Greece. And so we begin with this Egyptian, we call the Egyptian-Syrian conflict then, right? Because there was the Syrian area, the Seleucids, and then Egypt's the Ptolemies that happened. And there were several battles, actually I think there was six of them, over a period of several hundred years of a battle between that, which is described right here. And that's really where this uh, passage takes us to. So in verse 5, we we read that the king of the south is going to become strong, okay? And then, um, who is this? He's going to gain in strength. Well, we know exactly who that is. That was Ptolemy I, the first uh, general that was there. And there's a painting that they found him. I thought it was kind of cool. Okay, so he is the king of the south, and there's also going to be a king of the north that he's going to fight as well. It says, as well as one of the princes. Now, who is one of the princes? Well, that's one of the other generals that took the other portion, and that's going to be in the north, and that is Seleucus I. And he looks like a scared dude. So... Seleucus uh, was one of Alexander's generals, and he ruled from about 312 to 280 B.C. up into there. So um, if you want to know, why would God give Daniel this prophecy? Well, notice where Israel is in this. Yeah, right there in the middle. So any conflict between these two guys, who's going to feel the brunt of it? Israel. That's why. I think it's, it's pretty amazing. So... Um, this conflict that we read about, it occurred in, uh, in the reign of, of not uh, Ptolemy I, but Ptolemy II. Okay? So Ptolemy I, he lives, he dies, and then he is replaced by his son, Ptolemy II, Ptolemy Philadelphus. And, uh, and so Antiochus um, uh, Theus is actually the grandson of, uh, Antioch, um, of Seleucus I. And so this is where the battle takes place, is between these two guys what we read about right here. So uh, what do we read about in this battle? Well, we, first it starts with they want to have peace. So you have this daughter named Bernice, and that is the daughter of, well, awful name for, yeah. Anyway, so we have this thing. It says uh, the king of the south, uh, verse 6, after some years they will become allies, and the daughter of the king of the south will go to the king of the north to make an alliance, but she will not retain her power, and, um, and he and his power will not last. Now think about how crazy this is. The daughter of the south, that's Renice, right? This, the, the daughter of, uh, of, Aunt, of uh, Ptolemy the, the first, so she's the, he's, she's the sister of the guy that's in power, Ptolemy the second. And they say, listen, um, she can marry you uh, up there, Antiochus the second, but the problem is, is that Antiochus already had a wife, and Laodicea, Okay, they were married, and so in order to create this alliance, they said, "All right, well, you got to get rid of your wife Lassie, and then you can marry Bernice, and then we will have this, 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 uh, this alliance, right? The North and the South. Now we're we're, we're related. We're going to have peace." And we saw that in Europe, they did all this kind of stuff for a long time too. Well, Lassie wasn't real pleased about this, as you can imagine, and all these things. And and it says in here that the Queen of the South is not going to regain her power, nor is her husband. Well, wouldn't you know it, but two years after uh, they, get, uh, they get married, um, we have a, a regime change. And so uh, 
this gal's uh, dad dies, right, or her brother dies, and so so uh, he is replaced by Ptolemy the Third uh, and Eugrates. I think that's how you pronounce it. I had lots of different places that pronounce it way different, but I think Eugrates is what I'm going to say. He dies, or he's replaced, and so this is also uh, his sister that is now in power. But once um, his predecessor dies. Uh, we have the, the king of the north. He's like, well, I don't need to keep be married to Bernice. I want my other wife back, right? And so he kicks her out. And then he takes, okay, Laodicea back. Well, she lost power, but he's still in power, and the prophecy still needs to be fulfilled. Well, what happened was, while Bernice and, and Seleucus were, were married, is they had a kid. And, and uh, Bernice says, my kid, my son, is the rightful heir to the throne of the Seleucid Empire. And, and, uh, and Laodicea was like, uh-uh, I've got a son, and he's the rightful heir to the throne. And, and so... They were having this fight, and of course their husband was caught in the middle of it, and he's like, I'm going to pick Bernice's son because he was stupid. And so Laodicea kills him, straight up just murders him. And then Bernice is like, i got to get out of here, and she tries to get home, and she gets killed too, and all of her tenants and her kids die too. Yeah, lost power. You don't mess with Laodicea. And then she puts her son instills her son onto the throne, and uh, that uh, would be Antiochus II. And so we see that that passage was, was risen. So then it says the king of the south is going to rise in anger. We get there in verse 7. It says, uh, one of her family line will take up her place, and he will attack the forces of the king of the north and enter his fortress. And then he will rise against them and be victorious. Right? So he's going to get mad. So we see that this king of the south, this is uh, Bernice's brother, uh, Ptolemy Eugrates, right? And he's thinking to himself, man, I couldn't save my sister. I'm really, really angry about that. And so what does he do? Is, yeah, fire in the eyes, right? Is he's like, I'm going to go, I'm going to attack him. And he does. And he goes right up into the Seleucid Empire, and he, de- I mean, he does really good, right? And uh, he defeats them because uh, it says that he is going to succeed, Right, right there, he's going to be victorious. And he will also seize their gods, their metal images, their valuable articles of silver and gold, and carry them off to Egypt. And do you know what happens? He does just that. He gets all their stuff and brings them back to Egypt, their princes, their gold, statues, all that kind of stuff. And then really, now, the king of the south is really taking a lot of land in, in the north because he just basically beat them up, and he says, you are my puppet rulers in the north. And just like it said. All right. And so it says, And the king of the north will invade the realm of the king of the south, but will retreat to his own country. And we see that's exactly what happens. Uh, we have the, the, the king there who's there. It's the king of the north, this lucid uh, king. He's, uh, um, he goes by uh, Calicus. I think, it's, they have these really weird names, right? But what does he do? He's like, you know, I want to attack the king of the south. He goes down there and he loses. And then he hightails it back and he goes back to the very edge of his empire where he feels like he is safe and licks his wounds for a little while. He doesn't succeed. And so we see that that's happened, but the battle is not over. Uh, then verse, uh, we get to verses, uh, verse 10. It said, uh, verse 9, the king of the north will not succeed. He will teach his own country. In verse 10, his sons will prepare for war and assemble a great army which will sweep like an irresistible flood and carry the battle as far as his fortress, all the way down to the fortress of the king of the south. So we see the kings of the, the north has 
two sons that actually go to war with the south. And the very first one is we have Seleucid Crinicus, and the second one is Antiochus III, who's also known as Antiochus the Great. Okay, so the first uh, son, he goes down and he attacks. He's like, oh, I'm fighting, but he doesn't get very far. And then he goes up and then he ends up fighting some Romans and dies, right? But his brother, Antiochus the Great, and there's a reason they call him the Great, is because he won. Man, he was in there, he's like, boom, and he went all the way down and he fought the king of the north and he wins. And he takes back a bunch of the land, all of Syria, and he reconquers it for the Seleucid Empire. Right? Just like he said that it would in here in this passage. Right? And so uh, that was pretty cool. That happened in um, the year 225 B.C. Isn't that crazy? That we can actually say point a date to, to when this took place. All right. So then the king of the south, he's going to respond. He's like, I'm not going to take this. Right? I, I, we, we've taken the north. We're not going to take getting beaten up down here. And so it says here in verses 11... It says, And the king of the south will march out in a rage and fight against the king of the north, who will raise a large army, but it will be defeated. And when the army is carried off, the king of the south will be filled with pride and will slaughter many thousands, yet will remain triumphant. Well, we see this is exactly what happens. King of the south, he decides, you know what? Uh, the king of the south at this point is, is Ptolemy the fourth, and uh, and. His uh, nickname was Philippator, which means the one that my dad loves, which I think is kind of interesting. Uh, like, why did he get the throne? Well, you're the one your dad likes, right? But he was mad, so he gathers this huge army, and it was supposed to be one of the largest armies at that point ever assem- assembled to fight a battle. And he's like, all right, let's go up and let's fight. And he goes up and he fights the Seleucids at a place called Rafa, and he beats them in a decisive victory and slaughters thousands and thousands and thousands Right? And he lost a bunch of his army too, but they were big, and so he remained in victory. And, uh, but it says that his victory is going to be short-lived, right? Because when his army is carried off, I say, verse uh, 13, For the king of the north will muster another army, larger than the first, right? And after several years, he will advance that huge army uh, that is fully equipped. And so in the year 203, we find that the king of the north, he does, he resembles this massive army. He draws from Lysimachus, the Cassander. He brings all these allies in. He even brings in some, uh, uh, some mercenaries. And he has this massive army. He comes back down and he fights the king of the south back in that same area and he wins. Now, others that say will contribute to this war in here. Um, it says, verse 14, in those times many will rise against the king of the south. And that's exactly what happened. In particular, what we do is we have this guy up north, um, or, and by this time we have a regime change in the south, by the way. This is Ptolemy V is now in power. And we have this guy up north, um, and uh, he was uh, very important, and his name, and I'm trying to, I just forgot it, um, it was Philip. His name is Philip. That's why I forgot. That's what a boring name. Like these guys have cool names. Philip of Macedon, and he was. And there were several Philips of Macedon. This was Philip I, and he was an amazing uh, uh, warrior. And then he has this generation of warriors. In fact, Philip III of Macedon is probably the most well known because in a battle he lost one of his eyes, and he's got like this big scar. And then he was like terrifying looking, and they have these statues, and he was like just renowned. Well, this was like his granddaddy, and his granddaddy was a tough dude and also well known. Well, also joining in with the king of the south and with the the, the, the Grecian fighters, uh, we have 
some Jewish people. Some, we have uh, these Jewish fighters who come in and they think, they, they make a, an alliance with the Seleucid Empire and they say, uh, if we fight with you, we want to have our land, right? And, and so the Seleucid, the, the, he wants to go and fight. He wants to have this, this, this big army. So he takes these kind of these, um, these Jewish warriors as well and they go and they help him fight and then he betrays them, which is uh, amazing. So, uh, it says that they shall fall, and they did. Uh, he puts them in kind of near the front, and they get wiped out. All right. So then, in verses 15 through 19, uh, we read here that uh, the king of the north will come, uh, will come and build up siege ramps and will capture a fortified city. The forces of the south will be powerless to resist, and, and even their best troops will not have strength to stand. The invader will do as he pleases. No one will be able to stand against him. He will establish himself in the beautiful land and will have power to destroy it. And we see that's exactly what happens. He goes and he besieges the city where the Greek army was at. He destroys them. And then um, where does he stay? Well, he stays there in the land of where we now consider Israel. And he's got a massive army and he can destroy it. And so at that particular time, um, the Jewish people who were then betrayed by him, they didn't revolt because they were terrified. They lost their strongest soldiers. They lost some of these, these things. And he was there in power with his army and was basically unchecked in, in his might. Okay, so again, this is, um, this is Antiochus the Great. And uh, the forces of the south weren't able to resist him. And so there he is in the, the Holy Land. So now... Um, he says that he will strengthen his kingdom by giving his daughter in marriage, right? So we saw this happen before uh, to great effect, and he's going to try it again in verse 15. And so it says, Then the king of the north will come to build... Oh, wait, sorry. Um, the Vader will do as he pleases, and then he will... Do, um, verse uh, 17. He will uh, determine to come uh, with the might in his entire kingdom and make an alliance with the king of the south. And he will give a daughter in marriage in order to overthrow the kingdom. But his plans will not succeed or help him. Well, guess what happened is uh, um, Antiochus the Great, he's got a daughter named Cleopatra. Cleopatra the First, because there wasn't one before her. And he's like, hey, you know what? Why don't you marry that King of the South guy? Right? And the King of the South, who just lost this mighty battle, they were like, oh, yeah, we want peace. And so, the, so we have uh, Antiochus the Great's like, no, no, marry my daughter. She's great. You know, we'll be peaceful now. And Antiochus at this time, the Great, was worried about the Romans because they were starting to attack. And the Romans had these mighty ships and stuff like that that really caused the, the Seleucid Empire problems. And so he's like, I don't want to fight the South anymore. I'm going to bring my daughter there. Once she's in power there, then I basically am controlling that kingdom, right? I have my, my daughters there. The problem was it says it doesn't work. And it doesn't work because Cleopatra... The longer she's down there in Egypt, the more she starts to think like an Egyptian. Which is why when we think of Cleopatra, you don't think of Greeks, do you? You think of da-da-da, walk like an Egyptian, right? That's what you think of. <laughs> right? Cleopatra's like the most Egyptian of all the Egyptians. She begins to think that way and really betrays her dad and, and her land. She becomes completely uh, Ptolemaic, Ptolemaic, right? She is part of the, Ptolem- uh, the Ptolemy kingdom after that point. And so... Uh, then we see that uh, um, Antiochus the Great, he's like, all right, well, I got my daughter. She's married down there. I'm going to go fight the, the Romans. And he goes back up to the Mediterranean, which is what it says that he's going to do. And verses uh, um, what, 18, 19 says, verse 18, then he will turn his attention to the coastlands, right, to the Mediterranean, and will take many, uh, and then will take many of them. But a commander will put an end to his insolence and, 
will turn his insolence back on him. All right, so he's going to go fight. And who does he fight? He fights the Romans. And he is, there's a commander who destroys him, is, is uh, uh, Scorpio. Uh, he is a, a Roman uh, admiral commander, and he basically puts, he wounds, uh, he basically destroys his army, uh, the king of the north, and, and Alex, or Antiochus the Great eventually goes back to his, his capital, and he dies. Right? And uh, so we see that uh, that happens. And then, our attention then shifts to Antiochus IV. Now, actually, there was another emperor that comes in between these two, but he's not as big. So we have, um, after you have Antiochus III the Great, there's another emperor that, that rules for about 12 years, and we'll talk about him in just a minute. But then, really, the focus becomes on his successor, which is Antiochus IV, which is Antiochus Epiphanes. You may remember him earlier on in uh, chapter 8 as the big little horn. Really, it kind of talks about him. And so... Really, everything past this point really kind of focuses on him because this brings us up to the times of the end. One of the first things we read about him, how we know that this is Antiochus Epiphanes the fourth that we're talking about, is how he comes into power. First thing it says, he's going to be succeeded by a tax collector. It says, his successor will send out a tax collector to maintain the royal splendor. A few years, however, he will be destroyed, and not, yet not in anger or in battle. Well... Antiochus' successor, right, which, is, uh, uh, which was Seleucus Philopater, right, he, was, uh, he comes into power, and one of the first things he does is he decides to tax Israel, the, the people. In fact, he decides to tax most of the land the Seleucids had controlled because the uh, royal treasuries were starting to, to dip a little bit because they kept going to war, which is expensive. So what does he do? He, he creates a tax. Well, then eventually he is poisoned. He dies, but he doesn't die in battle which is kind of interesting. And guess what? His rule, 12 years, a lot shorter than his predecessor, his dad, who ruled for 37 years, right? And so after Seleucus Philippator dies, we have Antiochus comes into power. So we, he's, he's preceded by a tax collector, which is really neat. Next thing it says is that afterwards, he, this man with, uh, with no honor is going to come into power. It says he will be con- succeeded, this tax collector guy, by a contemptible person, who has not been given the honor of royalty. He will invade the kingdom when his people feel secure, and he will seize it through intrigue. Well, we know that Antiochus IV, Epiphanes, for he wasn't the rightful heir to the throne. His brother, Philippator, was, right? And, but he manipulates by conniving and gets to the point where he uh, gains power control so that he could become the next ruler of the Seleucid Empire, right? It wasn't through, the, through natural birth or through lineage that he gets it. It's because he made alliances and he, and he uh, stabbed a lot of people in the back, all right? Now, it says he's not going to be honored. And I think it's interesting that he was not honored by the people. His name is Antiochus Epiphanes. Now, Epiphanes, Antiochus Epiphanes being the, the, the glorious god, at the, the Epiphanes itself means the illustrious. And people called him Antiochus Epimenes. And that means the insane, Right? Even his own people were like, this guy is bad news. He's a crazy dude. And he was. And then it says um, in verse 21 through 24, we'll go on to read. It says, he will be succeeded by a contemplative person. Um, uh, he's going to come into power with, in, a, in, a, in a peaceful way. Well, he does. He also comes into power over the Ptolemaic Empire as well through intrigue, like through um, conniving. Right? He starts to make these bargains and these trades with the Holy but he's really good at making um, bargains and then breaking his word and all that kind of stuff. And he begins to gain an enormous amount of power, even over Egypt. Um, not through war, though. He doesn't go and attack them at first. 
It's through just dirty politics. Um, and so he gets people, and, the, and a lot of the Jewish people too, start to ally with him. And after they, they get close to him, then he springs the trap, and he becomes really strong through doing that over and over again. And so that's how it happens. Now, he's, he will provoke eventually the king of the south. This is going to happen for a while. Um, it says, then he will be, um, uh, verse 24, when uh, the, rich, the richest provinces feel secure, he will invade them and will achieve, uh, and will achieve neither what his father nor his forefather did. And he will distribute plunder, loot, and wealth among his followers. Uh, but he will plot the overthrow of the fortress, but only for a time. So he begins with this. He goes down and he, he treats. Now, there's a division because both could be true prophecy or prophetic things. One thing is he goes and he basically takes a lot of the power from the Ptolemaic Empire, which his father and grandfather weren't able to do, Right. He goes down in there, and he messes things up, and he gets a lot of power and all that kind of stuff through intrigue. And, um, and so Antiochus does invade Egypt, um, and the Egyptian king was the uh, Ptolemy V, Sycon, I think is how you say it. But anyway, he was in power, and he couldn't fight back. And here's why he couldn't fight back is because Antiochus the Fourth. He goes in, and he starts paying off the priests, and he buys the priests and the rich people in the south, and gets them on his side. And so when the king of the south, when, when Ptolemy the Sycon really wants to start to fight, he can't because he's got civil war happening in, in the south. Now, they're trying to take his power away, so he can't fight the king of the south. So instead, he creates a treaty. He says, listen, uh, uh, you Antiochus, I, I can't fight you right now. I've got problems at home, uh, so let's create a treaty. I will give you anything you ask, basically, <laughs> as long as I can stay in power. That's how he does it. Isn't that amazing? What his, his, his ancestors couldn't do, he did through intrigue. So after he does that, he, uh, then he says he, he's going to go up against the, um, uh, he's going to fight the, uh, the, the, um, the fortress, right? So what is the overthrow of the fortress? It could be um, down there in, in Egypt. They have, you know, the massive fortress city up there in Memphis, which he did overthrow. It may also be in the Holy Land. And that's why I said there's two possible interpretations, because he overthrew them both but only for a short time. And both took place, uh, which is interesting. It also says he's going to be bad. He's not going to like the people of Israel at all. Um, verse 25, with a large army, he will stir up strength and courage against the king of the south. The king of the south will wage war, not be able to destroy him. Uh, verse 20, which we saw, that's what he did with by uh, uh, creating that civil war down there in the south so the king of the south couldn't fight back. Um, those who eat from the king's provisions will try to destroy him. His army will be swept away, and he will fall in battle, which is what we find happened to the king of the south. Then to the, the two kings, with their hearts bent on evil, will sit at the same table and lie, uh, and lie to each other, but to no avail, because the end will still come at the appointed time. I love that passage. You have dirty politicians that are going to do dirty politician things, and God's still going to win. And what do we find is the king of the north and the king of the south, they come together and they lie to each other saying, hey, I'll give you whatever you want. No, I'll protect you. And they lie to each other. And basically the Bible says, yeah, they're going to do that. It doesn't matter. God's still going to do what he's going to do, right? So they think they're in control. They're in control, right? And then the king of the north will return to his own country with great wealth, but his heart will be set against the holy covenant. And this is where it gets bad for the people of Israel. We find that after Ptolemy V met with Antiochus IV, and they met and they talked and they lied to each other, and they played their dirty politicians, and the king in the north, right, Antiochus, comes back to his land, basically pretty victorious. He gets a bunch of wealth because the king in the south couldn't fight back. He goes back, and he's got all this stuff. He travels back home 
through the Holy Land. As he's walking through the Holy Land, Antiochus IV, he loved Greek um, society. Man, he was all about making, and they called Hellenized things. He loved Greek society. He loved it. Culture, everything. And he hated everything that wasn't Greek. So he's going back through the Holy Land. One of the things about Israel is that they were unique, is that they didn't give away their culture. Right? They're Hebrew meant something. They had their temple. They had the way of living. They had the way of, of dressing. They had their way of worshiping. That was very different than the Greeks. They didn't have all the different Greek gods and all this. And, and Antiochus Epiphanes is walking through, going back through to his country. Uh, and and he's, as he's traveling through the Holy Land, he recognizes this, and it makes him mad. And he's like, you know what? These Jews need to be Greeks, and I'm going to make them Greeks. And he has contempt against the things of God. And so... Uh, that's what we find that is exactly what he does, is he, he begins an assault against faith. And, uh, and so he does some horrible things uh, there. Um, he outlaws circumcision. He outlaws owning a copy of the, of the Torah. He outlaws keeping a Sabbath. He outlaws worshiping, praying to Yahweh as the one true God. He mandates that you have to worship these, these pagan gods. He does some really bad things. And of course, it was not well received. So then um, it says his armies and forces will, um, in verse uh, 23, at the point of time, will invade the south. Oh, sorry. Um, 30, right there. Verse 30. Oh, my eyes. It says, ships of the west, the coastlines will oppose him, and he will lose heart, and then he will turn back to vent his fury against the Holy Covenant, for he will return and show favor to those who will forsake the Holy Covenant. So what does he do? He's going to go, he wants to attack the south, but he can't because you have these, these, um, these Roman ships from Cyprus are there, and he, he kind of like, well, I guess I'm not going to go fight the south right now because there's the Romans that are going to attack us, and I remember what they did to my great-granddaddy, so I'm not going to fight. So he goes back through, and he's like, oh, like a whipped dog. He's up mad that he didn't get to go fight. So then he comes back to, to Israel, and he's already mad at the Israelites. So then he comes back with even more fury. And he's going to take out on them. And so, frustrated, uh, he goes up there. And, uh, and in verse 31, 30 and 32, we read that uh, he goes back to the people of God. And then he says, those who are, are wise, um, sorry, 30 31, he says, his armies will, will rise up to um, desecrate the temple fortress, and will abolish the daily sacrifice. They will set up an abomination that causes desolation. With flattery, he will corrupt those who have violated the covenant, but his people will know their God uh, will firm, but the people who know their God will firmly resist him. What a great prophecy. This guy comes back and his armies go into the temple. And guess what Antioch Epiphany does? Is his armies do go into the temple. And one of the things he does is he takes the, uh, a statue of Zeus and he puts it in the temple. And then he instructs his soldiers that they are to go and they are to fornicate in the temple. They're to take Jewish girls and basically rape them in the temple. That's what they're supposed to do. And to create that space, to take a sacred space and to make it not sacred. On top of that, what he does is then he says, if you're going to make sacrifices, um, he, you're going to make sacrifices here to, instead of to Yahweh, you're going to make these sacrifices to Zeus. That's who they're going to be to. And then... What he does is he puts a statue of himself in the temple and says, if you're going to pray to someone, you're going to pray to me. And he goes into where the Holy of Holies is supposed to be, but by then, there's, where's the ark? And so he walks in there and, and he desecrates the Holy of Holy spaces and he puts a statue of himself. And he says, the people you are going to worship, so that's what he does. I mean, it's just brutal. And it says that the people who know their God are going to resist him. 
And we find that that's kind of what happens. He also sacrificed a pig on the altar to desecrate that so that way it would be unclean. Um, So uh, he took the city of Jerusalem, he plunders the temple, but it says he's going to be nice to those that basically are, uh, that betray the people. Uh, So the Hellenized Jews, he's really good to them. Right, because he doesn't want civil. He doesn't want to fight everybody. He doesn't want to fight all the Jewish. Anybody who capitulates and says, "Hey, we're going to do things your way," he does really cool things. So he builds like this giant circus in the midst of Jerusalem. Right, he gives them entertainment. He gives them schools, Greek schools, and all this kinds of stuff. So as long as you're willing to go along with where he wants you to go, man, things are really good for you. But if you're not willing to go along with him, he will destroy you, and that's what he he did. And so. Um, he does other things. He says that those who, who know God will resist them, and we find out that, uh, and they are going to convince, uh, they're going to carry out great exploits. I love that. Um, uh, they will rise and instruct them. Those who resist him will rise and instruct many. Uh, for a time, they will fall by the sword or be burned or captured or plundered. Uh, but when they fall, they receive a little help. And many who are not uh, sincere will join them. Some, will raise, some of the wise will stumble, so they will be refined, purified, made spotless until the time of the end, for it will still come at the appointed time. And we find that, uh, that these, these resistances, there's going to be resistance that comes in, and these resistance, one of the things we marked by is that they're going to stand up and fight this guy, and they're not always going to win. Right? They're, going to receive, they're going to get their nose bloodied pretty bad, but they're going to instruct people. They're going to remind them of the ways of God. They're going to instruct many. They're going to be spiritual leaders and on top of that, when they do fall, they're going to receive help. Right? They're not just going to be wiped out. And uh, for many days, they're going to fall by the sword. And then through intrigue, right, through kind of back channel, like they, they kind of fought an resurg- insurgent war. under the like They didn't have massive armies, so they gathered allies through uh, insurgent kind of means. You know, they, they talked to people. They, they got allies secretly, and they did that. And then it says in verse 35 that those with understandings will fall, it will refine them, right? And we saw there that when they fall, that actually it's going to make the nation of Israel, the people, the Jewish people, are going to become more aligned with their Jewish faith, not less. So even though some of them went in for the wrong reasons, they just wanted to fight this guy to get him out, by the end of this resurgence, it's going to be marked a spiritual renewal for these people. They are going to be more faithful. Do you know this was fulfilled? It is a Maccabean rebellion. There was this priest uh, that, that was at the time, is an elderly priest, uh, and uh, he had five sons, and we call them the Maccabees, and he was a spiritual leader. And he saw what was happening and said, no, this can't happen. And his son said, we, we can't put up with this, this can't happen. And so they began, they got a lot of allies and all of this, and they taught people, the, the Jewish, the, the, the real ways of, of, of their faith, right? They taught them to be sincere and devout and all this kind of stuff, and they got destroyed uh, in some battles, but they didn't give up. And eventually, they overcame. And what was the result was, is you have these people where the, the nation of Israel was more like a, a faithful. As they said, we're, we understand these ways. We want to be faithful to the scriptures. Now, some of them took a little too far, and then we see like we get into when Jesus comes a couple hundred years later, that we have like the the Pharisees, you know, write laws around the laws, around the laws, right? Because they want to make sure they don't violate the law. So those people, we, we can take things too far, but it put the nation back on track saying we're not going to become Greek. It means something to be the people of God. Does that blow your mind? Does that happen? When you read about it, you see 
the word of God, and then you see history, and it lines up. Not just like, oh, generally, there's a king that's going to attack. But no, this king is going to give his daughter to this king, and it's not going to work. And this king is going to do that. I mean, detail. Detail. I mean, we see in this passage, you see the Persian-Greek conflict, which in the time of Daniel would have been unfathomable because the Greeks were nobodies at that time. And you find that the Greeks overcome and how they overcome an exact number of kings that are going to happen before the the Persian Empire starts to fall. Then you see the Syrian-Egyptian conflict, which at the time didn't even exist. And then you see the rise of the great enemy of Israel, who will come at the times of the end to set up the precedes the coming of the Messiah, Antiochus. Epiphanes the fourth. You just can't make this stuff up. This is why we have faith in Scripture. I think in this passage, more than just, just knowing that, hey, the Bible is, is God's inspired word, this is unique, this is powerful, it does remind us some things about God, His very nature. God is... He's eternal, right? He's all-knowing. He's all-powerful. And it lets us know some things about him, because only God could tell us the future like God did, right? The one is that God knows the future. He gets it. He's not surprised. I love it. And there he says, the king of the north, the king of the south, they're going to meet. They're going to talk. They're going to lie to each other. Big deal. Whoop, whoop. God still knows when the end's going to happen. They don't get to decide. God knows the future. He's not surprised. Also this, that God holds the future. He's the one that's ultimately in the control. His sovereignty, and I don't know how it works with free will, somehow God allows us to have free will, and yet he is still completely sovereign. And his ways happen. And he's bringing about, he shows us what the end will be. And it's good for those who are with him. But also says that God owns the future. He doesn't just hold it. It's his. God can do anything he wants to with the future, with time, with humanity, right? We are created We are his. Whether in the angelic realm or in this realm, we are created and God owns it. And think about the things that you own. You care for them and you do with them what you wish. And God cares for us. And he's bringing about something in this world, a redemption that is powerful. But I think something knows this too. It's not that God knows, owns, and holds the future. That means if he knows and holds the future, well, yesterday, this was the future. Well, as we know that God knows and holds and owns today. God is in control. And it doesn't matter what we see in the political world or what we see that's happening around that would make us afraid. God is in control. In your life, too. Now, you may look at where you are right now and you say, this is not where I thought I would be, but God is not surprised. And it says he's working all things together for the good of those who love him and are called according to his purpose. That you are his disciple. There is a meaning and purpose in your life. And God's, the kingdom of God right now is advancing exactly as God desires it to. And there will be times in this world where evil seems to rise and it appears to win, but its days are numbered. So how do we respond to that? God doesn't tell us to choose the time and the place that we live, but he does tell us this. We can choose him. We can choose faithfulness today. And I think that's the purpose of all of this. We get to choose now. Are we going to be with God (laughs) Or do we want to take our chances of standing with the world? So how do you apply this, right? This is one of those tough ones, right? All scripture says in the word, you're supposed to take it. You're not supposed to just walk away and not apply it to your life. How do you apply fulfilled prophecy to your life? Well, take out your connection card. I do have a couple of next steps for you to help 
take what we find in this and, and put it into your life. On the back there, if you want to commit to this week some things that you can do, the first one is, you might want to memorize 2 Peter one twenty one. Maybe you've been over the, the mindset that the Bible is kind of just like all other good books. It's just good advice for living. You are missing the point. This is not just another book that can, that can tell you, give you ideas of how to live. It is authority. It is God himself's word and tells us what he wants, how he works, and who he is. If you're not placing your life under the authority of Scripture, you are missing it. And you're living a dangerous life. And I think it helps us to remember that prophecy never had its origin in human will. These aren't the ideas of of just guys coming up with how they think the world ought to run. No, no. These were prophets, though they were human. They spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. The Scripture matters, so maybe you start there and recalibrate your thinking and say, you know what, you're going to read some things in the Bible that are very offensive to you because your moral compass is broken. And when you come to that point, you have to say, either God is wrong or I am. And you have to say, you know what, these prophets, it wasn't just me versus their ethics. This is me versus God. (laughs) And I need to recalibrate myself. I need to trust God. So maybe that's where you begin is memorize that passage. For when the doubt comes or what I would say, the, the selfishness comes and you want things your way to remember that the scripture is something higher than us. Maybe something else that you want to do is actually read the scripture. So you would say this week, I'll read Daniel 11, 2 through 35. You've seen the history. I've shown you the pictures of who was there. Read it for yourself. It's amazing. Or maybe what you need to do is maybe you need to pray for wisdom because you're going through something in life right now and you don't know the future. You don't know what's unexpected, but God's already there. And he knows what's best. Instead of God to bless your plans, maybe you say, God, give me the wisdom to be exactly where you want me to be. God, I need your guidance and your wisdom. You know, there's some great promises in the Bible that says if we pray for wisdom, God will give it to anyone who asks for it without finding fault. He's not going to look for it and say, do you deserve wisdom? He says, if you ask for it, he'll give it to you. Maybe that's where you begin, is begin trusting your life with the wise God who controls all of history and the future. And you ask him for guidance. Maybe that's where you need to be today. As the world seems out of spinning out, maybe your life seems spinning out of control. And you said, you know what, God, I want your wisdom. Help. He'll give it to you. Or maybe something else you can do is, I'll say, join a life group. How does that connect? God called us to follow him together, didn't he? That's it. And I'll tell you, living a life of faith in this world is very difficult because our world is telling us that this is a fairy tale, but is that a fairy tale that we just read today? But everybody in the media, the news, the TV shows, the radio, everything, popular society, we are a post-Christian culture, and right now, as you walk out, you try to live your faith alone, it's going to be chipped away and chipped away and chipped away. Following God takes courage, but it also takes fellowship. I think it's important for us. If we want to be disciples of Jesus, we need to be discipled as the disciples were, and that wasn't a group. You need to know other Christians. You need to encourage one another in faith. Tell this, pray together, see God work together in your life. Love one another, care for one another. If you're not in a life group, I encourage you. This is, this is not just so you can have friends or, or to have another thing on your calendar. It's because we are living for the only thing that matters. You are the people of God. 
And so maybe that's what you should say this week. I want, I need that. And there are going to be some other things in my life I have to say no to that I'm saying yes to right now so that I can make this a priority. But I encourage you, make it a priority. Because what we are living for, history is coming to a conclusion and our God is coming back. And he has given us work. And he's given us purpose. And he says, go do it together. So let's do it. Now, I've given you some things to think about. Some things to, to next steps. I ask you to, to take out your connection card. Let us know what you're going to do. Because I will support you this week. And, and if you do sign up for a life group, make sure I got your information. So that I can give Callie and Mary and their information. They'll contact you and help you connect. If you have a prayer request, this is a great time to put that down. Because in a minute we're going to connect, uh, collect all of these along with your tithes and offerings. And, as we, um, and we will pray for you this week. And God does answer. He's a powerful God. So write those down, uh, and then in a minute we're going to take our tithes and offerings. We do take your connection card, your tithes, your offering gifts, put them in the basket, and uh, that'll be good. All right, so let's pray for these, and then uh, we'll close this time and have the worship band come out and, and, and close us with some praise. Let's pray. Father God, thank you for your wisdom and purpose and power, God, that you... It's so helpful to know that you're not like Zeus, who can only rule from a mountain. Uh, you're a, you just throw thunderbolts whenever you get angry, like some angry three-year-old. God, you are the God of the universe. That even the angels, they, they fear you. That your sovereignty, it, it, it extends from this dimension to any, from this time to any, Father. That whether or not we recognize it, we could be like the king of the north and the king of the south and sit around tables and lie to each other. And even if we do it, it doesn't knock you off your throne. Because your reality is not dependent upon our understanding. You didn't have to reveal yourself to us, but you did. You didn't have to save us, but you did. So God, we're grateful. We're grateful for you. Lord, I pray that the message, the power of this message that we get to see today, the scripture that you had recorded thousands of years ago, for our benefit, would build faith in this body. Help us to put your word in its rightful place in our life. Let us... Let us bend a knee to your authority. And God, help us to be a church that is faithful to you, working with you, Father, as you bring about great things. Help us to keep the commitments we've made. And Father, bless these tithes and offerings as we give them out of obedience, but also out of love. Lord, we ask that you would do all of this because you are great. And we pray this in the name of our Savior, the Messiah Jesus. Amen.